Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you uh, for those of us that are here and, and healthy. Uh, COVID has kind of made its, its rounds uh, through us. There are a couple people who are still uh, having some symptoms and are not feeling well. And so we, we pray for those. Uh, I'm just thinking of two individuals in particular, uh, that you would have your hand upon them uh, this morning and that their bodies would recover. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that uh, everybody's had pretty much mild symptoms. And, and we thank you, God, that uh, regardless of what our bodies do, um, that ultimately we can place our, our trust in you, knowing that we are secure in Christ and that you are the giver of life. And so we look to you, Lord, to bring us peace and comfort and hope. Lord, help us to be uh, faithful to you in our lives. And Lord, as we continue through Genesis chapter 3, this, this uh, chapter dealing with the fall of humanity, uh, the introduction to sin and its consequences and ultimately uh, the, the reason that death exists is, is a consequence of sin. And so, Father, we pray that as we look at this last little section in Genesis chapter 3, that you would uh, give us understanding, that you would uh, point our hearts to Christ. And it's in, and it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I am going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 24 in a second. But because we've had kind of a couple weeks away from Genesis chapter 3, I want to give a little bit of an introduction of where we find ourselves uh, within this passage. So we're in the third chapter of Genesis. The book of Genesis opens up the first chapter with sort of the, the broad stroke of creation, that in six days, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. He filled them, put everything in place. Uh, just a, a wonderful thing. At the end of it, he said that everything was good, and he kind of adds, uh, no, it was very good, that everything was in place. Then we start chapter 2, and the first few chapters in there, we're, inter- we're introduced to God's creation of one of the most wonderful things that we know, and that's the weekend. And so we see that God rests on the seventh day and sort of he didn't need the rest. He didn't need to sort of take a break from what he was doing. God is all-powerful, almighty, but he set this example for his creation that we're to follow this pattern, six days of work and a day of rest. And, and so we don't have a good excuse to be workaholics, that we're supposed to build a, this sort of rhythm of rest into our lives. Then chapter two sort of backtracks into the creation account, and it goes sort of in detail in the creation of, of man and woman, and sort of marriage is introduced, and, and sort of creation is, is, is completed, and man gets sort of special attention and sort of how man came to be. Then we go into chapter 3, and everything changes. Uh, we, so we got two chapters in the Bible, free of sin, and then the rest of it is sort of downhill from there until we get to the end of Revelation, and then there's another couple chapters without sin. Um, but so the story is that they're in the Garden of Eden. Their, their, their rule of life is basically to enjoy themselves, like just to enjoy God's creation. You can eat of everything that's out here, enjoy marriage, enjoy your life. This is a utopia that God has created. The only thing that they weren't to do was to eat from this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so within a few sentences, we see that we're introduced to the serpent. The serpent then goes and he tempts Eve and, and Eve goes ahead and eats. She presents it to her husband. He eats 
and basically everything changes. Like the, the universe seismically changed. Everything changed. This isn't like a, a, a minor event in human history. Um, the fall happened. I believe that the, the DNA of humanity effectively changed, that this, this, this connection that we had with God was severed. Um, life changed. Man realized that something happened, and when they hear God's voice in the afternoon coming to look for them, they're hiding. They'd found some plants. They'd kind of like put some quick clothing on them. They, they sort of understood that they were now naked. God's kind of gently inquiring through the garden, hey, Adam, where are you at? Hey, bud, I'm looking for you. You know, I kind of use the picture of being a dad, you know, when the fun game in our family is, well, he's getting bigger now, but so it's getting hard for me to act like I don't know where he is. But it's like, you know, my son Titus will jump on my back and like he's choking me out. I'm like about to pass out. I'm like, anybody seen Titus? I don't see him. And everybody in the family's laughing and Titus is laughing and I can feel him like, you know, shaking from laughter. And it's like, I don't see him. And God's kind of doing this looking for Adam. He's God. He knows exactly where they are. And yet he's giving them the opportunity to come forward and say, hey, here I am. Finally, he finds them and he sees that they're, they're naked. He's like, hey, what's going on? Well, we're naked. Well, how'd you know you're naked? And so they go through this sort of this, it's really this gentle approach. It's, it's neat to see how God interacts with them. He's giving them sort of every opportunity. He talks to the man. He blames the woman. He talks to Eve, and she's like, I don't know. It was a serpent that did it, and then he doesn't talk to the serpent, and then these consequences are listed. The serpent is given some consequences. The woman is given some consequences, and then the man is given some consequences. And really, all of creation was given a consequence that we're dealing with. We've, we feel the effects today. Um, like, we can ultimately blame COVID on the fall. Like, we can. We can literally go back to the fall and say, co- we're dealing with COVID and what we're, all the last two years, ultimately, it traces its roots back to the fall. That, that sin has entered this world, our bodies are decaying, uh, death entered the scene, and so all of this we go back to the story. It's critical in our understanding and our worldview. And so today we enter this, this story. I will read Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 20. So we find ourselves in the place where God has just given the consequence. He's at Genesis 3.15. He's given a sliver of hope saying that a Messiah will come, a Redeemer will come through the seed of Eve, that, that life will ultimately come and, and a Messiah will arrive. And this hope was given in that story. And so we pick up here in verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which was turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. 
And Father, we do thank you and praise you again for your word. We ask that your spirit, that he would lead us, Lord, today, help us uh, to have understanding about what was said here and this, 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 this story, and that we would understand the implications in our own life, and that ultimately uh, that you would point us uh, to the true life in Christ. Uh, we are thankful, Lord, for the hope that we have in him. We are thankful for the story, and we pray that you would lead and guide us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, now verse 20. It says, now the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And so we're, so the woman suddenly gets a name. And it's, it's interesting to me when I was studying through this and, and reading the, the passage, I'm like, huh, when did Adam get his name? Like it was just like, sometimes you start reading the story and you're like, I've read this a bunch of times. Like when did Adam get his name? Like, when did Adam show up? Did somebody name him? Did like a giraffe or something name him? He named all the other animals? Like, but all of a sudden in Genesis chapter 2 verse 20, the English translation just all of a sudden inserts Adam. And the reality is, is that Adam is just a transliterization of the Hebrew word for man, Adam. That's how you say it in Hebrew. We all just learned a Hebrew word, Adam. Adam means man. So Adam was always just sort of gone by what he, his make and model. It's a man, and that was his name. And so we know him as Adam, and we know Adam as a name, but the reality is it's just a transliterization of a word that means like a human male. And so up to this point, the woman, Eve, that we know as Eve, she was referred to as Aisha, which means out of man. So there's, there's man or Adam, and then there's woman out of man. I've heard it said by some, I know Anna's heard it from the same place, that it's not woman, it's whoa, now that's a man. <laughs> like that's a, you know, like that's Adam going, this is brilliant, I love this. This is what I've been looking for. And so Aisha, so if Adam means man, Aisha just means out of man. And so here, all of a sudden, we're told now the man, or now Adam, called his wife's name Eve. He shifts what he called her. He calls her something different. He calls her Eve. Now, Eve, um, I'm trying to, well, let's get to the because. So he called her Eve, and then the text, we're told he called her Eve because of something. So he calls her something different, and then the reason is given, because she was the mother of all the living. So he's now calling her Eve because of this reason that she's the mother of all of the living. And so the name Eve, what it means is the living one or the life giver. And so stated plainly, it just, he says, the mother of all, the, all of the living. And so it's really fascinating at a deeper level, many scholars have indicated that the name change has to do with Adam's faith that God would bring about a, a Messiah, that God would be a, a, a redeemer through Eve because just previously in, in chapter 3, verse 15, God gives this promise, through the woman, this deliverer would come, that he would uh, bruise his heel, but he would crush his head, this, this, this whole uh, prophecy, uh, that the seed of the prophecy of the coming gospel. 
And so Eve, or Adam, it seems, has some faith that he responds to this truth and he says, you know what? This is no longer woman out of man. This is the mother of all of the living. Um, It's fascinating if you think about it. This is when we get to the story of Noah, who God says, hey, I want you to build a boat. Like, well, what's a boat, God? Well, there's going to be a lot of rain. Well, what's rain? We haven't seen rain at this point. Uh, it's going to be a lot of it, so build this boat. Okay, well, I'll build this boat. Like, I've never seen it. Like, at this, like Eve has no children. Like, th- there's no children. She hasn't had a child yet. And suddenly, Adam is referring to her as the one who is, like, the giver of all life, which seems like that would take a lot of faith. Like, if you've never seen a child be born or how this all, like, huh. So most sort of think that God is responding based on uh, Adam is responding based on God's promise, and he says, okay, we're going to change her name to Eve. Through her, life is going to come. Through her, the hope of the Messiah is going to arrive. And then in verse 21, we read, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, they had little sort of leaves or something on them. Like, I'm not sure the patch job that they had. Like, I'm, you know, I don't need a, I'm not going to, My, I can feel my wife looking at me, Gunner, don't, like, just, like, <laughs> I'm trying to imagine oak leaves and a little, I don't know. Like, but it, wa- it wasn't like doing the job, I don't think. Um, and I also think that God needed to, to instill something to show, like, no, your sin has some major consequences, and an animal is going to have to give his life, and you're going to have to wear some leather clothing. The net commentary says this on this whole scene. It says, the Lord God made garments from skin, the text gives no indication of how this was done or how, they, or how they came by the skins. Earlier in the narrative in verse 7, the attempt of man and the woman to cover their nakedness with leaves expressed their sense of alienation from each other and from God. By giving them more substantial coverings, God indicates this alienation is greater than they realize. This divine action is also ominous. God is preparing them for the more hostile environment in which they will soon be living. In verse 23, at the same time, there's a positive side to the story that God makes provision for the man and the woman's woman's condition. And so in the fall, something changed. And as we get to the end of today's story, we're going to see that they're going to go from living in this perfect little utopia to they're going to be basically kicked out of the garden to a much harder situation. And so God's providing for them to live in the harsher situation, and he's providing a sacrifice to make provision for their sin that they could respond to in faith. Over in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the author there tells us that according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so the fall wasn't just this like blip in the radar. This is a, like I've said it before, this was a seismic shift in the universe, in creation, that what happened here in the garden when they ate of the fruit that they were told not to eat and they sinned against God, everything changed. This was huge. And so now these animals or, or animal was sacrificed to provide for them, to give them this clothing. We see that God and man are now separated relationally and spiritually, that there's this great divide. And the sacrifice is now made that would be like this 
this foreshadowing of the Mosaic law that would come, the Mosaic law that basically lived around the, the whole sacrificing of animals to make this sacrifice over and over again to sort of cleanse and, and to, uh, to, to make restoration for the sins that humanity has created or has done over the course of their life. Ultimately, that whole mosaic system was pointing to Christ who would make the ultimate sacrifice on the cross that was a once and for all sacrifice, a sacrifice for us. And so it's this beautiful picture of this. Like you just read it, it's like, okay, he made him some clothing. He went and he got him some leather pants or shirt or like what, like, but but what happened is so much greater. I mean, this this is this is huge. We see in this we see God's holiness is is maintained. To have this relationship, sinful humanity can't approach a holy God, and so God has provided this way to to restore. A sacrifice is create. It, it happens. God also through the sacrifice provides for them uh, so that they would be okay into this new paradigm that they're about to enter. And so we see punishment, we see hope, and it's just this beautiful sort of action on God's part uh, working in Adam and Eve's lives. And we see this in our lives, we see this through the cross, that all of us have sinned, all of us have made mistakes, all of us, like, I mean, even my wife just sends me something this morning, like, not in my notes, but I, let me check my text messages really fast. She sends me a picture of a t-shirt this, this morning and says, the reason I'm old and wise is because God protected me when I was young and stupid. <laughs> and then she was super thankful for that reality. And, and you know, which, well, a couple of us laughed. Like, all of, like, the reality is, is God is protecting us all the time. And, like, we are, like, going against him. We're sinning against him. And God's, like, constantly, like, fixing up our messes, restoring us, providing a way so that we can have this relationship with him. And so this is beautiful when we look at this. And then in verse 22, we get to this really, like, unusual section. We sort of get access to this conversation that's happening. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So let's just make some observations from this. So we're in Genesis. We're in the very beginning of the Bible. And we're told that God is having this conversation. And so God says, behold, the man has become like one of us. Which is kind of difficult. Like this doesn't say God has become like me. God has become like us. And so this is this conversation that God is having with himself. But it's in the, like the plural form that he's referring to us in sort of the, 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 the multi-person. And so it's a, this whole phrase is difficult to understand. But we see right here in Genesis 3.22, we, we see sort of this introduction of God and this this idea of the Trinity, the Trinity is not seen. You're not going to find that word anywhere in the Bible, anywhere from, from Genesis to Revelation. You're not going to see the word Trinity. Trinity is a word that humans who love God, who study the Bible, try, like try to piece together a concept that we see. 
So we see throughout the Bible that God refers to himself as one. That God is one. It's, it was the Shema. The, the, I mean, this was Israel's sort of like what separated them from the other nations. That they believed in one and only God. We believe in one and only God. But then when you go through the pages, you see these three characters that are given attributes of deity. So Jesus throughout the New Testament, and and I would argue that even in the Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord, we believe, or I believe, and most of Christianity believes that when you see the, 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 before the angel of the Lord, not just an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, that that was like the pre-incarnate Christ sort of making earthly visits uh, prior to his advent. And so we see that Jesus is referred to as God. He is given uh, uh, recognition as God, that if he wasn't God, it's something that he should be uh, killed for. We see the spirit of God throughout the pages of the Bible, that uh, to him, uh, the, the, the name and the recognition and the, the credit of being God is given to him also. And then we see the Father. And so we see these, these three different sort of personalities that I'm not going to be able to explain to, like, it's, it's like way beyond our understanding. But throughout the pages of the Bible, we see these three characters that are given the sort of the title of God that we see in their behavior, that they have the attributes of God that are exclusive to God. And then we, we see in this very, very beginning section of the Bible that God refers to himself in, in plural form. And so it's interesting. I mean, all of that to say, like, here we see God is talking. And this little, uh, like, God's board meeting of, like, we got a problem on our hands. They've eaten of the fruit. And now, knowing good and evil... He might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. <clears throat> and so the difficult understanding is like, what does this mean that God, that, that man has become like God? There's a whole bunch of theories out there. I, I'm not going to speculate. I don't. We know that man carries the likeness of God, but somehow there's something different in the eating of the fruit that somehow their knowledge, their ability, it was different than before. And there was something about this that became dangerous for them and it became dangerous for creation. And so God says, we're going to have to like, we're going to have to change sort of the, their order of life, the, their rule of life and how they go about their days. And then we're introduced to this new tree. This new tree was there previously, but we, uh, we weren't told about it. We're introduced to this new tree, the tree of life. And so there seems to be something about this tree. So they were allowed to eat from this tree before. Like before the fall, this tree was totally okay. This wasn't a forbidden tree. The forbidden tree was the knowledge of good and evil. So this tree of life, they were allowed to eat from. And so somehow this tree, when they ate, it sort of, I don't know, like there was no need for like a good immunity system. There was no need. Like it just, you were created they were created to live forever. Like, that was God's original plan. And so now God says, if we leave this tree here with sin and the decay of their bodies, they're going to continue to live forever, and this isn't going to be a good thing. 
And so we've got to do something to sort of get rid of this problem. And I do think that this idea of the tree of life and this, this concept of, of, of not really being okay with death within the human race, like this is, this is because God has hardwired us not for death, but for eternity. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, we're told that God has placed eternity in man's heart. And I think that this is, this is why when we're confronted with death and we have a loved one who dies, it doesn't matter if your loved one is a, you know, 150 years old. I'm going to try to give some number that we all are okay with dying. Like, like you have a loved one that's like far has exceeded the shelf life of what we think is reasonable. They die. And for all of their loved ones who are behind, there's like great sorrow. Because there's something like within us that just doesn't feel right. It's not supposed to be this way. And I think that the reality is, is that God has placed eternity in our hearts, and we know intrinsically that this whole idea of sin is this new concept. But really, when we look at death, in light of Genesis chapter 3, death is a huge blessing of God. Like when I look at my own life, and I realize I'm still young, when I, when I learn and look to like elderly people and, and seeing like the decay that their bodies are going through, you know, like the one I hang out with a lot is my dad, who's like pushing, you know, 90 at 87. He's, and he's like, man, I'm still just like a teenager in my mind. But something's gone on with the outside, and it's fallen apart. And then if you could think, like, imagine what it would be like if we had the same rate of decay in our bodies, but we had to go on 30,000 years, 40,000 years. Like, it would be horrific. Like, it would be bad. And so God in his grace has not allowed life to continue, and through death is actually a form of transformation so that we can be freed from this body of sin and decay. But it still cuts against us. And so God says, he's like, this is a problem. The, the, sin has entered. We can't allow humans to go on in this sinful state indefinitely. We, we have to guard the tree of life. And so death isn't a, a curse. It's actually a blessing of God. And it might take you a while to get to that point when you realize and you come to understand like deep within your soul, bless you, that, that when we die, this is actually like a blessing that God has created so that we can escape this, this body that is going to break down and fail us. And so then in verse 23, moving along, we see that therefore, like, okay, so we've identified the problem. We've got to do something. Then in verse 23, we read, therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground which he was taken. So he drove the man out at the east of the garden, and he stationed cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And so they're kicked out. They're on their own, launched their wings. They're out of the Garden of Eden. No, no more. Things are about to get real for Adam and Eve. 
An, an angel is placed there with this sword to, to, to protect all of the different avenues back to the tree of life. We had, then we naturally think like, well, where's this tree of life now? Uh, the, the best speculation out there is that during the flood, the tree of life was basically taken away. And so I don't think we're going to find it. You know, I know people are still searching for like the secret of life. That's like, a, you know, in lotions and potions and stuff like we see it. Um, but so they're kicked out. The, the pathway to life is gone. And so then the question is like, what do we do with this? Like, how, like, what do we do with this section? As we, as we take communion today, if you want, you can start like working on opening your little gadget. Um, the last little phrase here, and he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see this, this passage was blocked. And as I read this, and I've sort of been thinking about this for the last couple of weeks, about this tree of life, I can't help but to think about, about Jesus. Like Jesus refers to himself in a couple ways, he he says that he's the bread of life. He also says that he offers living water. He also says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and a couple of these passages, which I do want to take some time just to, to read. I know I've set you off to open up the grape juices, and hopefully I didn't make a, a fatal error in doing that with you guys. Um, but in John chapter 6 where Jesus refers to himself as the, as the bread of life, like the ultimate sustainer. John chapter 6, verses 35. And here we read, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I, say, but I said to you that if you have seen me and you do not you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And so in this whole chapter 6, Jesus presents himself as the ultimate bread of life. This is after uh, the multiplication of the bread and fish where he feeds everybody, and he's trying to say, the reason I did this, guys, is that if you want eternal life, what you're craving deep within your soul, the pathway to find that is through me. Then a couple pages later in John chapter 7, verses uh, 37 through 38, we read, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said from his innermost, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so he's standing there crying out to them, guys, like living water is found within me and there's life found within me. Continuing on into John chapter 14, the passage that we now know, uh, we find ourselves at the, the Lord's Supper. From John chapter 13 all the way to John chapter 17, Jesus is with the disciples. He knows he's about to be arrested. He knows he's about to go to his execution and he looks at these guys in John chapter 14. I'll start in verse 1. It's such a beautiful passage. He says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go and I prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and 
receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so in this passage, it's like he knows what he's about to go do, and he's telling them, if you guys want life, you come to me. And through me, you have access to the Father. This access that we see was taken away back in Genesis chapter 3, that the fall created this divide. And so Adam and Eve operated by faith. All of the Old Testament saints operated by faith. When we come to Hebrews 11, this great chapter dealing with the heroes of the faith, we see that they always looked forward to this Messiah based on the promises. And now Jesus comes and he says, I have fulfilled all of this, and I am the bread of life. I'm the living waters. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want access to the Father, it's through me. And it's going to come through his ultimate sacrifice, his death on the cross. If you'll turn with me to Romans, the passage that will guide us for the Lord's Supper. In Romans chapter 5, this great theological summary of everything that we've been talking about today. The Apostle Paul writes there, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there there resulted justification of life to all men. So now he's comparing the fall of Adam to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Through the one transgression, death spread to all men. All men were condemned. But now through Christ, all can be justified. Verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the disobedience of one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so today, like, you know, a lot of people are like, hey, we just did communion. Like, why are we doing it again this week? It's like, yeah, we're kind of all over the place with communion. Like, some people do it every week. I don't want it to become like, like stale and boring, not the actual stuff. I think they come stale and weird tasting. Like, but like, like a routine of just doing it over and over and over again without like understanding what you're doing, that can, be, that can be dangerous. Not doing it enough, you kind of forget there's this command to do it. And so last year we kicked off the year and we did it. But then when I look at this passage and I see this whole passage looking at the big picture of the consequences of the fall, and then God realizing, like, I can't let these these individuals stay within the garden because the tree of life is there, and if they eat of the tree of life, they're going to continue perpetually forever and eternity in these sinful bodies, and so we've got to do something to fix this. So we're going to kick man out of the garden so that ultimately they can be freed from death, or not freed from sin, I should say, through death. And so when we come to communion, we're told in the New Testament, starting from Jesus' night with the disciples, he began to teach them about the bread and the juice. And he says, as you eat of this bread, you're to remember my broken body. 
that as Jesus went to the cross, the wrath of God was poured out upon him, that he absorbed it all. He absorbed the wrath that was due us for our sin. Each of us sinned multiple times. Like, like we were born into sin, and then because we were born sinners, we sin innately throughout the course of our days. And this separates us from God. And so we take communion. The cracker is to remind us that Jesus went to the cross. The wrath of God was placed upon him. His body was broken. He absorbed the the consequence that our sin deserves. He paid for it in full. And then we have the juice. Uh, This is a reminder of the new covenant that we have in Christ, that Jesus' death was once and for all as Protestants, This is a symbol. This isn't actually Jesus' body. This is some wafer that came from somewhere that's made out of something, which I don't even really know what it is. And then this is juice that I'm presuming is grape juice or some sort of variant of juice-like qualities. That's for debate, you know, like I... Like, it's not actually his blood. This is, this is a symbol. It's like my wedding ring. It's symbolic. It's to remind me. It's a memorial to take me ba- back to that place where the actual event happened. And so while this isn't Jesus' body, this isn't his blood, it takes me back some 2,000 years to that actual event on Calvary when Jesus' body was thrashed, like beyond recognition. And that he was placed on the cross and he sat there and he suffered and then he ultimately gave up his life for me, for you. And then the juice reminds us of his blood, which is symbolic of the actual, this covenant that we have in Christ. That I take this and I, re- I remember that my security is based upon what Jesus did. It's not based on my good works. Like I can take this I I can remember what Jesus did. I remember that I believed in him. And in the next moment, I can mess up. I can have a thought. I can sin. I can do something. But the reality is, is my salvation and my relationship with God isn't based upon my works. My works, the very best of them, my very best of days, won't get me anything. Going through Galatians, that one quote that sticks with me over, the only thing that we bring to the table with God is our sin. And so communion reminds us of the life that's found in Jesus, this life that we have been barred from in Genesis chapter 3. And so we take this today, giving thanks to God and remembering what he's done for us. It's by faith alone that we're saved. It's based on his grace, his mercy, not our own merit. And so with that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Father, we thank you that in these very beginning verses of Genesis that we see who you are, your nature, your desire to restore which was broken. We thank you that this promise was given in Genesis chapter 315. We thank you that in these uh, immediate verses following, we see Adam and Eve uh, respond by faith. We thank you, God, that you are so loving and that you are so compassionate that you're so merciful to us. We thank you that you care about restoring our relationship that was lost to you through sin.
And so, Father, I pray for each person that's here today. Lord, I pray that if they don't know you or they haven't responded, Father, that you would move them to this place where they uh, trust in you for salvation, that they would place their lives into your hand. We thank you, God, that you are trustworthy. We thank you that you are faithful, as we sang earlier today. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus died on the cross, that his action there was sufficient. We thank you that our relationship with you is, is, is our responding in faith, that it isn't a list of do's and don'ts that we'll never know if we are okay with you or not, but we can know that we are okay with you because of what Jesus did on our behalf. And so, Father, I pray that as we continue to enter this year, that you would help us to be a faith-based people, that we would trust you and that we would walk with you all the days of our life. And it's in Christ's good name I pray.